It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1956 film, The Killing. the killing here we are finally getting to i would say more fully formed kubrick after those two kind of finding his feet movies this one i feel like is fully kind of jumping into what he's going to be as a filmmaker at least into some extent but yeah very happy to be here happy to have eric back once again talking some more kubrick absolutely and before we get deep into the killing i'm just curious because i in my mind know why i thought this was a good idea well, in a way, to go down this road, as daunting as it is, an endeavor. But, because I know where I stand, whereas I have my, you know, my my current day directors who I worship, but when it comes to classic or movie overall, movies overall, um, obviously uh, Kubrick is my all-time fave, whatever, um, for, for the history of movie making. Is do you have similar feelings, or are you just along for the ride, or like I don't know what what you think when it comes to Kubrick overall in general? I think I've mentioned the podcast before. My my absolute favorite film is Doctor Strangelove, so I think on that alone he's uh, highly up there for me. But I know I, I love almost almost all of his films. I would say, except for maybe Fear and Desire, and um, I'm a little wonky still with. Uh, uh, eyes wide shut, but everything else, I know I'm I'm fully on board. So, so. <laughs> if you had some imaginary list of all time greatest movie directors, like in the history of film, is Kubrick in the top three? Is he number one? Oh, that's in your mind? Hmm. Are you a more of a Hitchcock guy or Robert Wise? I don't know. No. <laughs> oh, I wish Robert Wise is so all over the place. I love that guy, but he is so all over the place. Um, Kubrick would definitely be in the yeah, top five, no doubt. I'm not sure where he would land in the top five at the moment, but definitely be in there. Okay, I was just wondering. I was just wondering. Yeah, and I feel like um, maybe this is pretty typical, but um, from Lolita on, the movies he made after that, was the stuff that I was more familiar with in this early stuff. I came to much later in life than the rest of my Kubrick uh, experience. So this one I actually only saw back in 2017 for the first time. Oh, I see. I think this viewing today was my third viewing. So it's not one that I have a ton of familiarity with, but one that I have a definitely a lot of respect for. And this is actually, I think, only my second full viewing of the movie. 
And my first was, I don't know exactly, but probably circa 2009, maybe. I don't know. Uh, hmm. was the first time I watched it and I haven't really watched it all the way through until now so I actually have forgotten a lot more than I thought and I actually had some false memories of some things that I thought happened in the movie that never happened so oh, I'm interested to hear those yeah. Um, and I will say for this movie for so many years um, one of the reasons I didn't watch it and this is kind of a stupid reason is kind of like when we talked about uh, the wicker man you were talking about how all these annoying midsummer fans or people who were like uh i should say wicker man fans would like not knock midsummer and be like oh wicker man's like the superior thing there were so many kind of uh tarantino haters that i used to encounter online back in the day and they would talk about oh reservoir dogs his first film Oh, it was just like a flashy, like piece of crap kind of remake of the killing. And it was just filled with blood to appease the gore hounds. And it was like not a great film. Go back, watch the killing. And I absolutely loved Reservoir Dogs. So I'd see that all the time and be like, oh, like you assholes, like completely reductionist opinions. And so I kind of held off seeing the killing for, <laughs> I guess, just bitterness towards those people. That's interesting. But once I saw it, I could definitely see the comparison um and definitely a lot of influence but stands up as a great film in its own right really really like this one that's interesting because i don't like i it makes sense of course there's tarantino haters out there it's just for whatever reason they don't ever appear on my radar very often so i don't i don't often see their opinions or whatever and that's that's interesting i never really thought about that aspect and then especially as it pertains vis-a-vis -vis this movie so like I said, I saw this for the first time circa 2009, uh, and I didn't know anything about it or what to expect, uh, other than what you can tell from like the bo the box art that this looks noir-ish. Um, that's about all I knew going in. And once I watched it, of course, I, I had that reaction of, oh, shit, like, oh, man, I, I see the Reservoir Dogs ties heavily. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of them ahead of time. Mm. It was just... Oh, okay self-evident after i watched the movie like oh this makes so much sense to me um that being said i would never take the opinion of, of those that's a, it's such a ludicrous statement um to to diss reservoir dogs because of this because they well maybe because i'm such a tarantino whore as well but they're both fantastic in their own right and Yes, the inspirations are clear and obvious, but but it's its own thing. Like I don't know, they, they they both exist perfectly well in their own universes, and they're both fantastic. Yeah, and this would have been this would have been around the time of Grindhouse, and I was spending a lot of time on the IMDb message boards, which were filled with film snobs and douchebags. <laughs> and so when Grindhouse came out, I loved it. And all these people were just trashing the hell out of Tarantino. Like, oh, he's completely lost it. He's turned into a hack. Kill Bill, Grindhouse. He was never good. <laughs> and so I was constantly arguing on there, <laughs> stupidly, <laughs> back in the day. But I will say, though, I know we're on a different topic, but I will say after Kill Bill came out, and you know, at the time I thought, oh, God, like this is you know the most amazing thing ever. And I just thought, like, what can he possibly do after this? 
Like, I just thought, with Killville, he's reached the top of the mountain. Like, there's nowhere else to go. Boy, was I wrong in hindsight. Oh, wow. I, boy, was I. I just couldn't <laughs> imagine it, though. Um, mm. But, yeah. He's done okay, Tarantino. But, anyway. Yeah, back to Kubrick. And and that wasn't the only tie I saw right away. Um, or Or... Reservoir Dogs wasn't the only thing that I saw inspired. Um, that was inspired by it. what? What? What do you think, or what do you know, to be like the, the second most obvious thing that was inspired by this movie? Even if though it wasn't as much as Reservoir Dogs, but just a little bit. Um, well, I did write in my notes that during the kind of robbery scene, when we see uh, Sterling Hayden wearing the the mask, it made me think very much of The Dark Knight. Hell, so fucking yes. I'm not sure what you're going for. That's but. exactly what I'm going for. Hell yes. Sure. And I saw that as soon as I saw that mask, I was like, Dark Knight. Oh, and I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. And that's when I was first learning that because oh, yeah. I already knew that, of course, Tarantino would be very aware of Kubrick and all his Kubrickness. But then that was when I was first learning that Nolan was such a diehard Kubrick worshiper as well. So. Hmm. Yeah, it just makes sense. Um, yeah, since since I already mentioned Sterling Hayden, uh, I don't have a ton of experience with this guy. I've only seen him in a couple movies. Same. But he seemed like he should have been a, a big star. He's got so much charisma in everything I've seen him in. He's so fantastic in Doctor Strange. He's my favorite part of that movie. And uh, I can see why Kubrick used him again. He's great in this, I think. Well, He's got such a commanding voice. Well, did you happen to... I don't know what source uh, you watched this from, but did you have you seen any of the Criterion special features on this movie? Um, I did watch it on the Criterion channel, not my old DVD, but no, I didn't watch any of the extras. So there's a great one. It may be available on the Criterion channel as well. But there's this uh, 10 or however many minute feature uh, with Sterling. Uh and it was mostly filmed in 84. Um, there might be a little bit from that was filmed in 83 as well. And boy, oh boy. Uh, I mean, he looks very the same. He looks good for, I guess he'd be pushing 68 or so in those interviews. Um, and he's very much like the same person you see, but he's let his facial hair grow a bit. And in his older age, he's taken upon... Or he's taken on some um, William Hartnell uh, <laughs> uh, mannerisms. Oh, no. Because he's the same person as you see here. And, of course, he has the same American accent. He has a deep voice. But as he's recalling and telling his his tales of yesteryear, as he's speaking, he says, um, you know, and I knew so-and-so. Hmm? Hmm? And... Da, 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 and I did this and this, uh, um, mm, you know, and and oh, a little Yoda, I guess, in there too. But he does it a lot, and it, he's very William Hartnell. If William Hartnell had an American voice and a deep American voice, uh, so I don't know what that's all oh, about. That's funny. <laughs> Only he was like grabbing onto his lapel or something. Yes, yes, very much so. He's like in a bathrobe. Uh, like drinking, <laughs> drinking out of a um, what do you call it? Um, uh, a snifter. Uh, 
And it's like on his balcony in his bathrobe. And he's just like, yes, yes, hmm, hmm, yes. Yes, Kubrick, hmm, yes. Uh, oh, I gotta check that out. <laughs> yeah, but... So, but further takeaways from those interesting interviews. Um, you, he's kind of a... He comes... His real-life persona and his later stages of life, he comes across as like a very like he sees himself as an anti-hero uh if he was a protagonist in his own life story he sees himself as a very anti-hero almost like a han solo type um oh in that the way he's speaking to the interviewer he's like oh you see my trajectory in hollywood is i start at the top and i only work my way down like the more I worked, um, mm. I, he feels like he achieved his greatest fame at the very beginning um, when he wasn't even taking acting seriously. Um, but he feels like his his roles and his whatever in the industry just diminished and diminished over time. And like you said, you've only seen him in a few things. I've only seen him in a few things myself. And the few things we've seen, that's pretty much his best works. Uh, well, aside from, I don't know if you, I haven't seen Concrete Jungle. Um, I don't know if you have either. But that's probably pretty good. But but again, that's like his first movie. Because um, he did not, like, after his collaborations with Kubrick, he was just like in a lot of low-budget type movies. Um, and never really accomplished a lot. But there's something else I learned for the first time. That's significant in a way in those interviews. Um, I didn't know that he dabbled in the American Communist Party. Um, and oh, apparently yes. that was a big part of his life in the early days of his career. Um, and uh, he was caught up in the whole thing with, like, he had to stand before the federal mm-hmm. government and he had to share names of anybody he knew who was like working in the business who had ties to the communist party. And he did that apparently. Um, and so in the interviews, he touches upon how and why he got into the communist thing in the first place. And then he, as he reflects on it, he he hates how he gave up the people he gave up. But at the same time, so he's very remorseful about giving up some of his associates who had quote unquote red ties in the industry. But then furthermore, he, the way he says it, he regrets in retrospect, he regrets having any ties at all to the whole communist thing. Um, Mm. So yeah, he has a lot of feelings about all that. Yeah, when we were, because uh, we've recently been covering all the thing or uh, who goes there adaptations, and two of them both had ties to the whole Red Scare and Hollywood Blacklist. So I was doing a lot of research on that, and yeah, his name definitely popped up a couple times. So I was like, oh, didn't realize that poor Sterling Hayden was also affected by that kind of black mark on Hollywood. But what can you do? Yeah, conservative overlords. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but to get back to the movie a little bit, um, 
yeah, this is the first time that Kubrick's like working with a cast that I feel like I know from other things apart from his movies. Like even uh, I forget his name, but the guy who has the wife who ends up screwing everything up. Oh fuck that character! Uh, but I know who you're talking about. I need, I need to get my my cast list in front of me. Yeah, I'm positive that guy showed up in some Star Trek, and I know that I recently saw him in some Batman '66. So I've been going through that series, and he popped up in there in one of the Mister Freeze episodes. So <laughs> I don't know why you're watching '60s Batman, but yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I watched it as a kid. I could never stomach it as an adult. Um, oh, it's so great! Uh, I love it. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah, well, see, I don't, I don't dabble in mind-altering substances the way you do, so. I may be missing out. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, him... I mean, we gotta... I think the thing that really defines this movie, which is... It, it continues into something like Doctor Strangelove, but I feel like Kubrick eventually loses this. But this movie has some just fantastic dialogue. Super snappy. I, I'm laughing throughout the whole movie. Some great, great lines. And it's, I think we talked about it a little bit before... Maybe not during this Kubrick, Kubrick retrospective. But at some point, it, it's almost like he lost his sense of humor, or at least his sense of humor changed. But yes. I think it's all over this this movie, and it works so great. But also, he had a different person who wrote the screenplay, as far as the dialogue goes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was his last name? Um, uh, Jim Thompson. Yeah. So he wrote the dialogue for this movie, and they collaborated for about a four-year period, starting with this movie. So, so I guess oh. Thompson, you know, had a role to play, so to speak, in that way. And so, probably a lot of the words were 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 flowing through him. Oh yeah, yeah. So, and even though this was based upon a novel, like most Kubrick's works are, but Thompson was the novelist; he was just the screenwriter. Yeah, but, but also famous in his own right as a kind of, uh, what would you call it? Like, I guess, book noir, or I'm not sure what they call those, but <laughs> just those kind of, like, dime store mystery books. I guess he was quite famous for. That's called Pulp Fiction, sir. Pulp Fiction, there you go. <laughs> those are called pulp novels, like, yeah. Yeah, and I actually took one of his books out of my lo local library, The Killer Inside. So, uh... I'll be trying to go through that because I was like, wow, his dialogue's so great. I want to check out one of his books. Yeah, <laughs> and you were talking about the casting, obviously. Um, and oh, I still don't have his name yet. Uh, the character actor you were just speaking of. Um, oh, his name's Elijah Cook Jr. Um, oh, there you go. That's it. Yeah, who plays George Petey, the, uh, the cuckolded... Um, uh, ticket booth guy uh mm -hmm. yes he's everywhere like in tons of old westerns uh i completely yep. forgot about tos until you mentioned it um well so the producer on this movie who was another person that kubrick started collaborating with with this movie for approximately the same duration as as with thompson um i need to find the, the producer's name uh so the producer has a great little featurette in the supplemental features as well. And he talks about how um, 
you know, Kubrick had done his previously two films, his two previous films, and he had garnered enough attention to, you know, take the next step in terms of budget, etc. Um, and Sterling's uh, Sterling's agent um, saw the role for this movie and was interested. Like they saw the script, uh, and. Uh, Sterling and his agent were interested and they wanted to know who's making this movie Stanley Kubrick who the hell is that guy don't know who's that guy Um, well it's his first big feature oh crap really well that doesn't sound great Ah, don't worry this guy's good trust me he's good Um, you know okay so they like semi reluctantly agreed um, but that he was obviously you know the quote unquote star of the movie Sterling um, so then the producer goes on to say, so they got their lead guy, and he said, because Stanley Kubrick by nature is just this guy who is obsessed with watching movies himself, I mean, you know, going to the cinema on his own, he's obsessed with watching movies and obsessed with reading novels. He said <laughs> that Kubrick, he just had all these names for all the characters, and that pretty much everyone in this movie aside from sterling they're all they were all famous character actors um and kubrick just knew them all and obviously the way he was describing this it's like the way people describe tarantino and the way his mind is Mm. and so he's like yeah kubrick was like this person's gonna play this role this person's gonna play that role and the guy was like he just had it all like cataloged in his mind like he just knew who these people were just from him watching movies and so he had this whole list, and that's how they assembled these people. Oh, that's cool. I love hearing the background on Kubrick, because I felt for so many years, like um, like another favorite uh, filmmaker for me, John Carpenter, I would listen to all his commentaries and things like that, so I felt like I really had a relationship with the, the guy and his work. You know, I could kind of put a face to it. With Kubrick, he was always a mystery t- to me until I read, uh, oh, what was his name? Who's a star Spartacus again? Oh, God. Uh, uh, Douglas. Um, Kirk Douglas? Yeah, Kirk Douglas. Yeah, I get it mixed up with his son's name. But yeah, yeah, Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Yeah, until I read his book, I Am Spartacus, I always felt like Kubrick was a complete mystery to me. So I always love hearing little bits of background on him. <laughs> yeah, well, something else. Um, uh, Kubrick t- didn't get to choose his cinematographer or director of photography. Um, mm. you know, I should have all these names queued up, but I don't. Yeah, I have that one, uh, Lucien Bollard. I was actually excited to see that name. I was like, oh, yes. So Lucien <laughs> Bollard or Ballard, who I don't really know offhand. I have yeah, to look Ballard. at his, at his, at his filmography, but he was a well-established, um, DP. Uh, mm-hmm. he was a very suave Hollywood director type, meaning he, he walked the walk and, and dressed the dress. Like, he looked like a Hollywood guy, like, in fashionable, stylish suits. He was, for a director, someone who's behind the camera, he's a very handsome man, married to a famous actress. Um, so he was a very Hollywood guy. And then you juxtapose him to Stanley Kubrick, who was 28 at the time. Basically, you describe his appearance as, like, Bohemian from New York. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> and so these two were very clashing just on appearance. But apparently, now you know, because you know a little bit about Kubrick, that he already had an eye as like a photojournalist and whatnot. So mm-hmm. he already had a lot of ideas in his head about composition uh, and and lighting, etc. And because this DP was an experienced guy, um, he wasn't used to directors telling him what to do or or giving their opinions on on his craft. So apparently, these mm-hmm. two very much did not get along at all during this movie because P- Kubrick had very specific ideas and shots in his mind and very particular ways he wanted things to be focused, etc. And and this guy was not having it because that is not the way he worked. Um, so supposedly, like when they would go over dailies and things, um, the DP wouldn't even show up. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So... Wow, sounds like Lucien was, uh, yeah, falling down on the job. Goddamn, <laughs> not even showing up. This guy, yeah, very established cinematographer to just be pulling that kind of shit. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, it was semi-rare in those days. Uh, you know, in the classic days of Hollywood, like, producers did what producers did, directors did what directors did, and DPs did what they did. You know what I mean? It was, it's mm-hmm. not like modern times where those roles can get very blended, uh, depending on who you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, so I guess he was just pissed with Kubrick and his yeah obsessions with controlling everything and yes, like this guy. I'm not sure the shoot. Mm. Yes. Well, that that's too bad to hear because yeah, I was kind of excited to see that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's done a lot of great great work in movies. Um, I've never seen True Grit, but The Wild Bunch and um, What's the Matter with Helen I think is a great looking movie, and he did this cool Bronson film called Breakheart Pass. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, a buddy of mine worked on some some stuff that I really like, and didn't never really realize that he worked on this one. So, and I think the movie looks fantastic, even if maybe it was Kubrick doing more of the work. I don't know, but <laughs> either way, I think it's got a good look to it, and has some really uh, good flowing camera work during the whole climax section, kind of moving from bit to bit. Oh, that's what Sterling. That's that, when asked what he thought about Kubrick uh, during those interviews. He said, all I know is, he said, I, I, he said, I noticed how the camera was always moving. And he said, I like that. Mm. I like that I would see the camera moving around a lot. So he was like, yeah. Um, so at some point, <laughs> we're going to have to talk more about the plot. Yes. <laughs> and I just got to say, because if you haven't, this goes without saying on pretty much any movie review that you would ever, have ever heard me on. But it's going to be all spoilery. And I'm going to say now, like, mm. if you have not seen this movie and you think you might want to someday, this is one of those rare times I'll say, stop this and go watch it. Because it's better to watch Absolutely. this and have no idea what all is about to happen. Um, and I will say, too, so I haven't seen this movie in over 10 years. I was as caught up with the suspense as anyone because i couldn't remember how things actually were going to end uh, or exactly what was going to happen so in many ways it was like i was watching this movie again for the first time so you talked mm. about what's his name uh the uh the cuckold the cuckolded member so okay so these guys oh, yeah. sterling's got a plan on how all these guys can get rich but each person has to play their specific role um, and if they all do it together, he's got like the perfect crime 
planned out. Um, uh, and and this guy, jeez, oh, I need to learn yeah, people's George. names. George, he's he's the fucking worst, and I can't stand it. I can't, but I I, I can't stand it in movies or stories when there's characters like this. But I get it. There has to be because otherwise, how else do yep. you get? You know, how else do you get the? Uh, what do you call it? The yeah, the, all the setting the the train off the tracks or whatever. <laughs> yes, like the movie has to have a plot. You know, so there has to be something to disrupt things. And this idiot. Oh yeah, he's the king of fuck ups. I mean, he's married to an absolute bitch. Like this this girl, she's just absolutely completely toxic. Every scene she's in. And I mentioned earlier how much I enjoy the the dialogue in this. And her and Sterling Hayden, I think, deliver it better than anybody. Like, she's so good at at cutting right through him with the lines. And just, I love all their scenes together. And he just stands there looking, like, so disappointed, but still so in love. And he's just like, like, why why would you even be with me if you hate me so much? But yet, he doesn't want to turn her away because he's so in love with her. I think they both sell those scenes so great. He's the worst. She's the worst. <laughs> oh my god! Because uh, so you know this is one of those situations where uh, you know whether it's a real life situation or a movie. Ah, uh, you know the the criminals could have got away with everything. They, they could, you know, but they always got to fuck their own shit up somehow. Um, and so you have all these different characters. They have their roles to play. Um, at one point, I couldn't figure out. Like, because there's the one guy who his job is basically just to put up the initial money, <laughs> the initial capital mm-hmm. that they need. Uh, and he's also pri- providing a temporary place for Starling to stay at. And he provides the $7,000 that is going to be used to pay off two other accomplices. Um, but tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure. Well, or also answer this question. So everyone has a job. Why do we need the bartender? To be in on everything, mm. I didn't. I didn't quite figure that out. Well, I guess his role. I mean, his role obviously was just to to bring the gun, but I guess um, George could have done that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I forgot. You're right. He did technically bring the rifle in. Okay, that's something. <laughs> yeah, but I also I also get the sense that because his role was right in front of that door there and he kind of interacted with the wrestler who started the big fight i thought maybe he was supposed to be some somewhat of like a supervisor to make sure everything was going right and like if anything started to go wrong okay. maybe give sterling sterling hayden kind of like a nod like hey things aren't going right and don't don't go in there but it's yeah his role is a little bit a little bit wavery i'm not like it seems like george maybe could have brought the gun so i believe it's the guy who put up the money that guy now is that guy the same guy so when we actually see the caper starting to unfold in real time for the first time uh is he the one who comes to the bar before the wrestler comes to the Mm -hmm. bar and he's like super drunk yep yeah and since you're i was gonna hold on to him till later but he's one of the characters that to me stands out because we talked previously about how lolita kind of brushes up against the code and about the things you can't include movies back then. Yeah. Thanks to, again, conservative overlords. Do you feel like he was gay-coded to have some sort of 
maybe romantic feelings towards Sterling Hayden's character, Johnny? Because of that weird conversation, right? Because of that weird conversation. <laughs> but even even some of the ways, because they have that fantastic scene around the table where Sterling Hayden's like delivering everything, and he t- tosses it over to Marvin. It's like, hey, Marvin, you know, you're the one that put the money up. None of this would happen without you. And the way he just looks at Johnny and kind of is like, oh, I wish I could do more. Like, there's something about that, too, that feels a little more... Than- In retrospect, yes. I didn't think about it too much at the time. But, okay, so there was the... Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, because I almost completely forgot it. So I, I just noticed it when I was watching it, you know, today. That So there's that weird conversation. Let me try to remember what... Uh, he was saying something like... like and it, it, like, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. He says something like, couldn't it just be the two of us? Yeah, I've got it. As Johnny mentions, after tonight, we won't see each other again. And the guy's like, oh, Johnny, you know, I always saw you as a father. But maybe maybe the two of us should go off together. You don't need to get married. You know, sometimes marriages don't work out. Maybe the two of us should just go off together and, you know, see how things turn out kind of thing. And Johnny just kind of gives him this, like, look of, like, uh, this isn't right. And, like, pats him on the head, tells him to go to sleep. So I almost got the sense that this kind of thing's come up before between them just from that little interaction oh see see and i guess i got some of the dialogue messed up because and i even rewound it because i was like what did he just say and even when i rewound it i came away with the wrong takeaway i think because the way i sort of remember the conversation was you know he was saying it could just be the two of us and and we can travel and do all this Mm -hmm. and then he said something like well you know i don't know i don't know about marriage and I was like, what the fuck? What? And I didn't take it as the way you just said it. I took it as if, wait, this as a non sequitur, like, like, hey, Caleb, let me and you go travel across Europe and oh, maybe not get married. Like, what? <laughs> oh. See, I took it as the implication of we would have like a marital bond. And I was like, how does that make any sense in 1956? So I was completely thrown. Um, so I guess I just mis- I misunderstood that, I guess. And it just confused me further. Because I didn't realize he was referring to your potential marriage uh, with his girlfriend. Yeah, that chick. Yeah, and we can talk about her as well. I mean, again, we've talked a little bit about Kubrick's women. Yeah. And I, I feel bad for her. She's a weird one. <laughs> but there's so many great things in this movie. I, I'm watching a scene right now where they introduce the... Uh, the firearms guy yes i was gonna kill the horse yes and of course that guy shows up in paths of glory in a very memorable role and this is the thing that comes up a lot with kubrick he's attracted to these weird performances these just whacked out performances i'm not sure why he would rehire that guy after this movie i mean i'm not saying he was bad but his performance is so strange (laughs) and the fact that he brought him on to do an even maybe potentially stranger role in Paz of Glory. I don't know that Kubrick sometimes, but... Oh, well, I, <laughs> but he stands out. I have no idea who he is in Paz of Glory, because it's been a while since I've seen that as well. But um, oh, I'll be looking out for that. But I'm glad you brought him up, just because I kind of liked him and his kookiness. Mm. And when later at the end of the movie, when he's first trying to get into that parking lot and he's talking to the... Uh, the attendant. Oh. And when he's just trying to get in, um, he makes this, this um, 
I think in, in a book they describe it as a wry smile. But mm-hmm. he makes this weird kind of smirky looking expression. <laughs> and I swear it's something out of uh, um, Ben Affleck's like tool bag. Like, like Ben Affleck <laughs> has the same yeah. type. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Like a shit-eating grin. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. Now, did you think this before no. I said this? Or, or No, I definitely did not. Okay, because I was like, that's even more amazing. But he did it, and I was like, oh my god, that's the Affleck expression that I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I just like that when it almost seems like, you know, like newer generation actors are like, like resurrected versions of classic <laughs> actors. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that was, oh, that was good stuff. I like that. Yeah, but we got to talk about that attendance scene. That's that's such fantastic work in this movie. And it's such a little moment, but it works so well. And it sets it right in the time period that it's in. Because we have this, you know, it's 1950. We have this black attendant. He comes up expecting to just take shit from a white man. And he gets just the slightest, like, nice treatment. Someone gives him some money. He's polite to him. You know, they kind of share, like, oh, we are both in the war even though I'm assuming it's a lie for the gunman. And so he takes a shine to him, like, oh, here, I brought you this uh, little, what's it, like, um, a pamphlet or some sort of, like, uh, whatever the race are going to be guide. I don't know if you know what that's called. <laughs> yes, yes. It, well, it's like a playbill for a play, but it's, I forget what they yeah. called it, the program or something. And again, they have a nice kind exchange. And he comes back later, like, oh, you know, I'm having a good day. This, this Someone treated me right as a black man living in a white world. And then just that that moment, he even brings him his little uh, like a little piece of luck, a lucky horseshoe, which ends up being his undoing, the other guy's undoing. And all all the dialogue during that scene, all just the way it's shot, with that final shot of the the horseshoe and the tire, like all that stuff just works so well for me. But <laughs> it's good stuff. Now I you know I just gotta say, so. So because he comes the third time with the horseshoe, but now it's become it's coming to the critical moment where this guy who's the shooter yeah. has to do what he has to do. Um, but he he can't have this guy here, obviously. So he has to get rid of him immediately. So mm-hmm. if you go and watch the movie, or I hope you've already seen it now if you're listening to this part of the podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So to dispatch him immediately, he just throws out the infamous N-word, in um in a very direct way um Mm -hmm. okay i I always play this game when we watch these older when when me and sean watch these older movies on best picture podcast but how do you obviously neither of us was alive back then would mm-hmm. this have fit in with movies at the time, or would even then would this have been like, holy shit, that's being harsh? Um, no, not at all. <laughs> so you don't think so? It, it would have been more startling that they were commenting on it as unusual. I think. I mean, because we kind of portray the the black man as you know a little bit more, uh, you know, he's he's a nice figure, and here's this criminal. They're having like this nice exchange, and then suddenly it turns. So you're supposed to be more sympathetic. No, I, I don't, especially in these kind of crime movies. No, I, I don't think it would have been unusual at all. See, I don't know because, well, see, I haven't watched a ton of noir at all or anything like that. So I don't know if there's other examples that are on this level that are 
especially pre-1960? I don't know. Maybe there are a lot. I don't know. Uh, because to me, I know you could hint at the concept in movies of the era, but um, without having any without having any evidence, it seems to me like this was more direct than you would normally see in a Hollywood movie. Like to just espouse that racism or portray it so bluntly seems to me to stand out but uh, again i don't know i'm not as educated in 1940s and 1950s film as i'd like to be to know if that's true or not because even though there's like gangster movies out there like the original scarface or well actually the 30s or the 50s scarface i don't think they i don't know i need to go watch those movies i don't think they get really direct i mean with yeah, I feel like I've seen it in movies from like the 30s and the 40s, but I, I can't think of a lot of them off the top of my head. And there's the other part where a lot of those movies are probably not accessible anymore. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, it, they could be um, whitewashed, for lack of a better term, uh, mm. from existence. So therefore, we wouldn't even know about them now. So who knows? Uh but I do think it's a great way to set it in the period. I mean, it's it's you know it's a, uncomfortable in its way, but a great little uh, I was gonna say time capsule, but it's just a good way to make a little bit of a comment, and especially with that kind of a dramatic irony with the horseshoe being his undoing. I just thought it was a great little capper on that tiny little plot line running through the movie. Like, okay, let me reframe my original question. Do you think for an audience? A contemporary audience in '56 watching this movie and then hearing the the N word uttered, uttered the way it is when it is, would it affect them the way like in Django Unchained or something? And even in our modern times, people are like, "Whoa, this is a bit way much on that word in this movie, Django Unchained." So, do you think it had that much effect in '56 or? not even an effect hardly at all because people would just be like oh no that's accepted that's more acceptable speech in how we speak in 1956 or would it shock people to see something like that at the movies I, this is what i can't figure out hmm. I, w- I would think that it would depend what part of the country you're in at the time in the states how much you would be affected maybe in the more like really liberal cities you know maybe it would affect them more I think in the black communities, I think they would take a lot from this scene and be really positive on it. Um, I, I wonder how it'd be received in the South of that. I don't know. Wait, explain that. <laughs> would they be black audience would be positive on it? What does that mean? I think they would appreciate seeing, you know, a, a positive black character and in his way, get it over on someone who was being racist towards him. Oh, because okay. ultimately it's his short, his horseshoe. That's the undoing true 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 well see i wasn't even thinking that i was thinking they'd still be too focused on the harsh use of the n-word to get to that part just like with Django, people even though Django's like the hero who gets revenge people are still way more focused on the n-word yeah the, a different time of course today i think um most black people in this time would probably be fairly used to that kind of treatment uh, especially, you know, in certain parts of the country, but I'm sure countrywide in the States would be a lot of familiar kind of 
they would uh, very much imprint on that kind of character, I would think. And then to see that that see him ultimately get kind of a well, what's the word? Not an upper hand, but uh, comeuppance. Comeuppance, exactly. I think would be a very satisfying moment. Interesting. And then, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a very interesting scene, the whole thing. Uh, but um, boy, oh boy, where are we? So, uh, yeah. So we got the interesting gay undertones. Because that took me by surprise, because I didn't notice it the first time. And then, okay, we covered the attendant. Um, the uh... Yeah, I did just want to talk a little bit about that. What I think is a great scene of the, the group sitting around that table as he lays out the plan. Um, we discussed during our uh, Godzilla anime trilogy how much me and Isaac just love seeing plans set up and then just watching them fall apart. And so I, I love the structure of the movie. That very early on we get that scene where they lay out, okay, this is everyone's roles, this is exactly how it's going to play out. And I love that even during that scene, already it starts to go wrong because that stupid chick, Sherry, shows up <laughs> and immediately shows the signs that uh, maybe choosing George for this was a mistake, but they don't realize how much of a mistake until, of course, the uh, scene where they all get slaughtered, but... And so I love just watching all the minor things go wrong. Like, I love that Marvin shows up and immediately the bartender's like, uh, what the fuck? Like, you're not supposed to be here. And Sterling Hayden's face. Oh, see, that's what, that, that's what I was asking about earlier because I was confused. Because I was like, was he supposed to have a role to play other than putting up the money? And then why was he super drunk? And I was like, what is happening? Like, I was, like, confused. Yeah, and I think that... I think that, too, kind of uh, added to my theory of the gay kind of angle. Like, he was just, I guess he was really hopeful that Sterling Hayden would maybe see the light. And especially him, you know, adding such a key element to their their uh, scheme. And to be turned down like that, yeah, he just got drunk and decided to show up and maybe not disrupt, but at least, like, show, like, hey, you know, I'm not someone you can just push around necessarily. So I was like, okay, this, yeah, it seems like and, they're... And also, again, I suffer because I'm not an expert on movies from the 40s and the 50s in general. But the whole gay agenda thing, again, that you're talking about, obviously there was a bunch of gay characters that are hinted at, like in other movies of these days, but it's usually played like in some type of weird comic way, like it's funny or something, or... They're, or the subtext is is not really subtext. Uh, mm. It's it's super text that they're like flamboyant, and y'all know what that means. Wink, wink. You know when someone's super flamboyant, um, mm-hmm. like that's the way usually or oftentimes uh, someone who's gay or homosexual is portrayed, like on television or movie in the day. Um, or the, you go the opposite direction in some movies where it's very it's pl- it's played very very extremely close to the vest and you have to like really it's almost like you have to squint really hard to see the hidden um gay subtext in some things because it's really buried and <laughs> so your mind has to like sort of do like a leap to make the connections because mm-hmm. it's so parsed out 
But this is different to me. Like, this seems, again, like, just as, to me, it's a bit <laughs> brash, to put it lightly, the, the use of the N-word I was just talking about. And then, the way this is not really, this is, this feels overt to me. And I don't, mm-hmm. again, I don't know if there's a lot of examples of that. Um, Like, uh, like, oh, this reminds me of when, uh, are you familiar with mine and Sean's conversations on uh, um, the movie Mr. Chips or whatever? I can't remember the whole t- name title of the movie. No, I only watch ones of movies I've seen. <laughs> so Mr. Chips, um, oh, it's like the return of Mr. Chips or whatever. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to spoil that movie. But in that movie, it's about this character who dedicates himself to being a teacher at like a boys' school, um, and he does like a whole like thirty year career, you know, dedicated to being a teacher or whatever. Um, and so he's considered this beloved teacher because he's you know been there for so many years and he's taught so many generations of of students and and whatnot. And then I was at some point while me and Sean were talking about the movie. I said, well, you know, I kept saying, like, it's funny how there's a little hidden gay agenda in a lot of these movies from the 50s that we're watching right now. Uh, or that was 1960 or something. And Sean was like, well, what do you like? He's like, what gay agenda? Like, there's no gay agenda in this movie. And I was like, come on. Like, Mr. <laughs> Chips, like, he he's a lifelong bachelor. Wink, wink. Don't you get it? And Sean was like, what do you mean? And I was like. That's, I mean, when people were like bachelors, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, it's kind of like, eh, you know what that means. I mean, either the person's a crazy ladies' man, or because Mr. Chips was no ladies' man, uh, as you see in the movie, like he's like super awkward around this this female who has a thing for him. He's like super awkward. Um, and I'm like, don't you see, like. And I'm not saying this is like some Catholic church scandal or anything. That's not what I'm implying. But what I'm saying is, like, I feel like it's 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 unwritten but understood that this guy lived a whole life and never married, and and he dedicated himself to his work. But it's not just that. It's so. So in other words, I'm just saying that's just one of those examples of it's like it's really subversive. You know, it's not in your face it's not like mr chips again he's not flamboyant or anything like that you just have to like read between the Mm -hmm. lines like why is this guy single you know and i told sean there's no other explanation in in 1960 context except for (laughs) except for you know he's not into the ladies that's it that's all but anyway yeah i will i will say um i do think that they make marvin like especially smiley especially whenever he's around johnny he's got like a big grin i think at one point he even like uh maybe lights johnny's cigarette or something like that and like he's just got a, always a big smile for him so i feel like there's a little bit of you know a little bit more signaling but but maybe maybe that's just me overreading it i'm not sure but <laughs> i think you're right uh it's just fascinating it's just fascinating because and you notice this in other notable filmmakers uh, throughout time. It's just, you know, movies like music go through different phases. 
you know, through the decades, etc. Different things in movie making become faddish at different times and whatever. Uh, but but the notable filmmakers, it's like they always knew how to make modern movies, even if they weren't in modern times. If that makes any sense, mm. like mm-hmm. like star like George Lucas had this vision for Star Wars of how he wanted the final product to turn out when such a thing didn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you end up calling that person like ahead of their time, like in retrospect. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how, because we've obviously seen his Kubrick's movies of the 60s, 70s, 80s. So we already know what he's going to do. And it's, it's like, you can tell this is the same guy, except he went in a time machine and showed up in the 50s. And he had to play by their rules, but he was still thinking those same types of things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, this is obviously the guy who made Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. <laughs> but this is all he could get away with in 1956. But but the, the same thoughts were always percolating somewhere inside mm-hmm. his head is what I'm trying to say. Or Clockwork Orange or whatever. Yeah, and when did... Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Clockwork Orange, was that like, what, like maybe 15 years from now? 16 years? Uh, 14? 14? 15? 15? Yeah, I mean, that's the same guy just working, just basically stuck under the control of conservative, like I said, conservative overlords, the censors, dictating what's allowed to be seen on on the the screen. As opposed to, like, if we're talking about music, in my metaphor, uh, like, the Beatles, see, they evolved over time. I mean, their music evolved. It's not like... They had Hey Jude in their mind the whole time, and they could have done that. No, no, no. They, like, evolved until they got mm-hmm. to a song like Hey Jude. But in this case, it's different. It's like if the Beatles had Hey Jude already ready to go in 1962, but they were like, no, we can't because no one's ready for it. No. they, You know what I'm saying? But Kubrick, it's like he already had it in his head, even though it wasn't the right time to express it fully. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because um, when I logged onto the Criterion channel earlier today, you know, they always have their, like, banner. Like, this is the kind of um, little, like... The uh, theme or something? Yeah, like a little film festival they do. Yes, yes. The one that they have up today was pre-Code Hollywood. Oh, nice. And it was, like, back before the Hayes Code when they were still allowed to, you know, (laughs) basically have artistic control over their movies. Uh, It was filled with sex and sleaze and, you know, overt violence. And so they have big playlists, so I was going to check that out after, uh, I was going to check one of those out maybe after this discussion. Man, they always have the coolest things, like, over there on that channel, and I just, there's been so many I've wanted to get into, but I haven't, or I never do, even though I see I want to check it out. And again, I mean, yeah, it's, it would have been fascinating to see what cinema would have looked like in the 50s, especially during film noir, if they weren't under strict control by crazy (laughs) conservatives just dictating what was allowed i understand that but i've also expressed though there is something to art that has to do with your constraints um and well i've brought the lucas thing many times that that's part of i think made him do his better work is when he was constrained by technology and effects and budget and time but also um people bring it up about like like Shakespearean type works and like, well, why did he restrict himself to iambic pentameter? And why did he, because 
there's something about that. Or, like, why do people write haikus? Because there's something that comes out of forcing or voluntarily taking on the constraints. Now, I get it. The, the Haze yeah. Code is not voluntarily taken on. But my no. point is, though, I've brought up many times to Sean and I think to you, yes, the Haze Code was annoying, restrictive, etc. Oh. But I love seeing how people try to um, find loopholes and subvert it. And to me, that is that so that that was an unintentional consequence, but something I find so delightful is yes, and yeah, we both definitely enjoy that. But I think the difference is me; I still find it so repugnant that those people just had so much control. It it makes me sick to think about all these artists who, if they did try to push it, yeah, they would have been maybe kicked out of being allowed to make these movies and. Not to mention with the whole <laughs> the blacklist being forced to not be allowed to make films or have to go to a different country. That's all the same people doing that, that this, these conservative just, okay. in a way, dictators of art. I and hate, I just find that so gross. I, I hate <laughs> to go down this political road, but you forced me. Um, <laughs> well, it's inherent in the work, you know. So, because I think it's super analogous. You tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but I'm curious then what is your opinion on the current state of things and how things are in a through the looking glass type of way things have been turned on their head now in modern times with movies and media and stuff where it's gone the opposite direction where yeah the liberals are more in the in the dictating chair so to speak when it comes to mainstream media um, in other words, you have to have representation. You know, the whole Oscar mandate of some years ago, where if you're going to be considered for an Oscar, you have to have X amount of people of color behind the camera, behind the scenes, da 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 da. Um, and so it's almost like unwritten rules that for television shows and movies, most of them these days, that you have to show different types of representation of color and orientation and everything. Like, it's just kind of like, it has to be there to a certain extent, no matter, no matter what you're producing um, to the point that even it affects historical productions, which see, see where you said that the Hayes code was annoying. I think it was much worse than annoying. And, you know, it was enforced by in a way law, you know, right. It was like in a, a, a course with independent, uh, because back then, especially in the thirties and forties, so many theaters were like owned by the studios. Mm -hmm. They were basically strangling out any sort of independent films. It's just, it's apples and oranges because the, the whole medium of film is so different now. There'd be no way to, for the, like a liberal government to enforce something like that. Yeah. And okay. So, so that, that's, that makes a big difference. I understand the difference in, in that now it's more of an, an unwritten code, uh, unwritten rules, but, and you're right, there's more avenues because if you're strictly independent or working on micro budget, you can still do whatever you want. You know, nowadays, you know, it doesn't really matter, yeah. but if you're doing something that's produced by a studio, a legit studio, whether it's for television or movies, you have to play by these unwritten rules. At least yes. it's been that way for like the last 10 years or so. 
Um, but they're never going to show up at your door, be like, what's your political standing? If your political standing does not align with our values, we're going to put you in front of a court and we're going to basically put you on a blacklist and you're not allowed to work for us anymore. So, I mean, again, that's the big difference. But they do put you on a blacklist that nobody sees. I mean, publicly. Uh, I, I, I mean, again, we, we could talk about someone like James Gunn, who for a minute was on the blacklist, and another studio immediately swooped in to grab him again. It was like, come oh, over for us. He <laughs> is the most shocking phenomenon. I've been wanting to talk about that, by the way, and I don't know on what podcast <laughs> or when. Um, he's the most shocking thing to come out on the scene in the last five, ten years, because um, you've seen his Suicide Squad, yes? Yep. Okay, but have you seen Peacemaker? Uh, not yet, no. But I am going to watch it, absolutely. See, I'm amazed. So he he already dodged the bullet previously of, he, of how he had crazy tweets back in the day um, that get most people canceled um, when they resurface. And he's made crazy statements, like on in interviews and stuff in, in the distant past. Um, that again, most people don't survive once they get uncovered. And somehow he survived all that. He you mentioned how he survived the being briefly canceled by Disney, uh, and then being you know being resurrected in um, by DC, and then being brought back to Disney. Phenomenal. And then. You know, I watched the whole Peacemaker series not too long ago. And that show goes against everything I was just saying and is like the antidote to everything I was just saying as well. Because there is so much dialogue and stuff in that series that breaks all the rules, or the current rules. Hmm. And I can't get... How come he gets to do whatever he wants... And I didn't see like all the quote unquote liberal types saying, oh, we need to boycott Peacemaker because, oh my God, he's taking a shit on all our PC stuff. Like, because again, so he had those tweets he did in the past and he regrets them now. He's grown. He's a different person. He's been forgiven. But then when I watch Peacemaker, I feel like he's going, you know, those tweets and those things that I said I was ashamed of. Well, here it is, all brand new again. Ha ha, here it is. And did you hear anyone trying to boycott the show? Or did you see hate articles? Tom Gunn is injecting racism and body shaming. No, I didn't see any of that. That's another. So I don't understand. How does. The thing to point out is if you watch a lot of HBO shows, HBO doesn't care about that stuff at all. They, they do whatever they want. And people don't complain because I guess it's not, maybe even today, HBO still isn't a mainstream format that ever, or a platform that everyone's watching. And the people who do watch it are just willing to, you know, just put up with anything. I don't know. <laughs> but a lot of their shows I watch and I'm like, that's, I'm, I'm surprised they get away with the stuff they do. And I'm glad they do. I mean, I don't like censors of any variety. Now, but... see, something like Euphoria... Everybody loves it because, of course, even though it's a bunch of teens doing shitty things, it's super diverse in all the proper ways, you know, and so it gets all this acclaim for showing all those different sides of coming up and everything uh, in the world today. But uh, great show. We still have one of the lead characters 
throwing around the word retarded all over the place <laughs> randomly. Oh yeah. Doesn't yeah, even yeah. feel in date with young kids, but they still put it in there. Yeah. So yeah, Peacemaker breaks all the woke rules, and I can't figure out how James Gunn has this like card of immunity. I, it's 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 mind-boggling to me. It's completely mind-boggling. Yeah. Again, it's it's, <laughs> it's not just him. I mean, a lot of like low budget stuff again also doesn't care about that in someone like um but he's not low budget he's he's so mainstream it's there's also right-wing filmmakers who make movies that would be otherwise a little offensive someone like michael bay even and he fully you know the studios still give him a pass i mean that that's why i say it's apples and oranges there's no real comparison he gets some there's I... like a social media movement that if they put up enough stink people will, you know, the studios will kind of bow to the uh, pressure but it's not like a like a hard line, these are the rules you have to follow or else you're out. And there's no committee that's f- forcing people to testify. And if they don't turn in their friends' political alliances, then you're well, you know, <laughs> completely different. So Michael, again, somehow Michael Gunn gets away with murder. But then you're right, there is, did I say Michael Gunn? Uh, James <laughs> Gunn. Okay, Michael Bay. I'll give you Michael Bay. But Michael Bay is Michael Bay. And of course, there's Clint Eastwood. But again, Clint Eastwood is Clint yep. Eastwood. But if you're Joe Schmo, working guy in Hollywood, working director, yeah, you don't you don't get to have their immunity. Not 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 by a long shot. Well, it's always been that way. If you're if you don't have a name, yeah, you gotta kind of do what the studios tell you to do. That's always been the case. But anyway, I don't know. Unless you're working in the independent scene. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't realize all this was gonna come up, and I hope we haven't lost our eleven listeners. Um, yeah, some of this I might put into its own separate podcast, but I do think it's worth bringing up, and we have kind of run into this a little bit. But yeah, I really do think there's no comparison, especially because it was. Like, I hear you. I think there's a comparison to be had, um, but but ties are changing even now, like they always are. Um, and I mean, of course, we also. I mean, so many of the people who were running Hollywood at the time were like ex-military and very much kind of aligned with the government in terms of we need to dictate to the public. Uh, Sterling himself, a war veteran, Marine veteran. But still a communist. He wasn't someone who believed in a very particular narrative out to the world. That was after he got out of the military. But yeah. Um, Okay, where are we in this movie? Um... So you were completely thrilled by it. I I was impressed by how once the caper is actually unfolding and, and we're going through mm-hmm. the process, again, I had no clue how this was going to turn out. I could not remember who would live and who would die. I couldn't figure out. I knew things were going to go wrong at some point. That much I remembered. But I couldn't remember how things go wrong, ultimately. So... I was completely caught up in this movie. Um, uh, here's here's a a weak um, comparison, but uh, I'm straining here. But it's kind of a little bit of how I feel watching The Shining, um, because two thirds to three quarters of that movie is slow build, slow build setup, 
And then the last quarter or so is just balls to the wall. Like, oh shit, now it's all going crazy. Uh, and, and, and as a viewer of The Shining and someone who enjoys it, you just get completely wrapped into the suspense and thrill of the last quarter or so. And I was on that same trajectory as I was watching this movie. Like, I was anticipating, like, the end. Like, from the beginning, I was like, all right, this is all set up. I want to get there. And, and, okay, there's Sherry. And then there's Sherry's other boyfriend. Who, by the way, that actor at mm. first, I, I think he was another great uh, little role in this movie. Perfectly cast, I thought. And Absolutely. You know who I thought it was for a second? I don't know the actor's name, but do you know? Do you remember the antagonist in Fright Night from the 80s? Oh, yeah, the guy who's in uh, Princess Bride. What's his name? Yes, him. Oh. For a hot second, I thought this was him as a young man uh, playing Sherry's uh, young boyfriend. It's not. Sheridan something? Sheridan? When you said Sherry, it, it clicked. I think that... Where's my child's blade disc? <laughs> <laughs> He's in that too. <laughs> but I, I thought it was him for a hot second. It's not him. Uh, yeah, I can see the comparison. <laughs> well, because also I don't know if you've seen Dog Day Afternoon, but you see he's he, you see a young him in Dog Day Afternoon, oh, he's great and I, I could connect the dots from this to Dog Day to Fright Night, Princess Bride. Yeah, his role in uh, Dog Day. I saw that when I was uh, maybe around thirteen or fourteen. And that was a big deal for me, that movie and him in it. Sure. But, um, yeah, Chris Sarandon. There you go. <laughs> my um, play disc. So but I love his role. Yeah, I think he also delivers the dialogue really well. And I love, um, how it's kind of seeded through the movie, him and his little other buddy. And we're just waiting for them to show up. Cause you know, as you're watching the whole scheme show up, you're like, when are these guys going to like appear? What, what are they going to do? And then when they finally appear, it's like a scene under Reservoir Dogs where it just all goes wrong in like like 10 seconds. Yes. There's lots of gunshots and then just blood everywhere. <laughs> not, not as gory as Reservoir Dogs, of course. And while, <laughs> yes, Tarantino borrowed most probably or reused most from this movie in Reservoir Dogs, but he also took some elements and used them in Pulp Fiction as well. Um, yeah, I mean, did you notice any borrowed parallels? in Pulp Fiction to this movie? Mm -hmm. None that I can think of, no. So, the guys with their dames, very Butch and, and Fabienne, because um, Fabienne is very much like Sterling's girl. Like, oh, just mm. like a hapless heroine, you know, just completely mm -hmm. nothing on her own, who 100% relies on her male counterpart for everything guidance everything mm -hmm. um there's that um the cop when we first are introduced to him uh you know he has those debts with some loan shark uh mm. underworld guy um it reminds me of when butch uh in pulp fiction goes to see um marsalis wallace in the bar and Marsalis Wallace has explained, you know, the plan to him and everything. But just the whole idea of going to the... It, it's like it's such a similar vibe. Um, yeah, and I gotta say about that scene, that's a scene that I feel like doesn't need to be there. 
but it adds so much color to the movie. And just again, the dialogue just pops. Are you talking about Pulp Fiction or this one? <laughs> uh, the, the the scene where we get the cop dealing with like his little mob boss guy. Yes, yes. And they have got a great kind of, oh, you know, we're friendly, we're friends, but the threat is always there. Like it comes up in like very minor little comments. Oh yeah. But you can feel like the the tension at the table the whole time. Great scene. Yes, but again, that's like Marcellus Wallace, mm-hmm. like. You're my friend, but you're not really my friend. And then also, I just thought of this one. Um, when Sterling is pulling up to the uh, agreed-upon uh, meetup point after the heist. Um, oh. And he drives by, and then, what's his name? Yeah, George. You know, just, like, stumbles, like, on the hood of his car. And it's, again, very much like Butch when he's going back to the apartment, or he's leaving the apartment, and then Marcellus Walls just happens to cross the road in front of him oh that's fair mm-hmm. um is there anything else that sticks out at me that kind of reminds me of the narration what do you think about the narration use i just think it's a wheel bit oh wheel bit it's a little bit weird um <laughs> because it it's like there was the weird narration on uh fear and desire Mm-hmm. And was there narration in Killer's Kiss? Yeah, the lead character did like some bookend stuff where he's like, "Oh, I met this thing." Yeah, so it feels, it feels weirdly old timey to me, and it feels yes. weird that he relies on the device three times in a row for his first three pictures, and so it was mm-hmm. actually kind of annoying. Um, but in one of the supplemental features, uh, I can't remember what the guy was. Some type of art film and out an analyst he was saying he liked the the narration in this movie because in his mind um the narrator is a unreliable narrator because the narrator Mm. is so overconfident and full of themselves that (laughs) they can't really be trusted And and he compared it to the narration that happens in Lolita. Um, and he said it was mm. similar in that way because when I look at it that way, it's the same thing that happens in Lolita. Except I like the narration in Lolita a lot more than these three films. Uh, but the same thing, whereas the narrator in Lolita is, again, really full of themselves, like their, number, their own number one fan. So you get a very <laughs> um, slanted type of... Uh, uh, narration and people have different opinions about how uh, I'm assuming you still haven't seen the new Batman film nope not till tomorrow but spoiler uh, it kind of starts with a narration and ends with a narration and some people have remarked on that like is that hokey is it weird is it good people have different opinions about that hmm that's interesting well but um yeah, I was going to say for me, I think the narration, <laughs> definitely the last time I watched it, because the last time I watched this, I watched it in sequence with Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. So I was kind of like, oh, he's leaning on the narration again. It feels a little lazy. But watching it this time, I kind of got the sense that it was kind of um, like maybe like a newspaper reading of just like describing how it all went down. Uh-huh. So it, it, it worked for me in that way, but... It does feel a little bit like a little bit of a crutch, but a couple moments here or there it does have impact. Like again, when we see the scene with the uh, the horseshoe, 
And he kind of says, like, at this time, this person died. And it's, like, signaling, like, okay, from this point on, that's when everything starts to unravel. And so for that moment, I thought it worked well. It had a good ominous kind of air to it. But the overall, not... I'm glad he moved on from that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and since we're mentioning things that are, are kind of a carryover, he also used uh, Gerald uh, Freed, or Fried, who had done his first few movies and would also go on to do Paz of Glory. What did he do? Uh, he did the music. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. And I'm thinking now, looking at the movie on screen, uh, I maybe need to go back and look at some of the art direction a little bit more, because... Mm. Uh, I think we're in sync if you're still playing at the same place. Uh, so, um, what's his nose uh, has come back to Sherry um, and for their final meeting, and she's packing to go somewhere. And I just noticed like the whole room. What's up with the Oriental um, decoration? Uh, seems rather unique. Um, the pictures on the wall, and then there's like a dragon on the lamp. Uh, the lamp. Um, I don't know. It just seems very unique. And I think I read that uh, Kubrick, Kubrick's wife at the time, I think she did the art direction on this movie. Um, so I'm curious oh. what other random. That's just not the kind of thing you would normally see, like in some random noir movie, like random yeah, that... oriental decor. That scene overall is super strange. Like, they got the parrot, like, making all these weird comments. Like, it's almost like repeating their dialogue. But then every time we see the parrot, it's very clearly a fake parrot. <laughs> so, <laughs> very strange. Um, I do like that scene. And then, I think. by the way, do they sleep in separate rooms? Um, um, I think so, yeah. Because earlier in the movie, I thought they lived in an efficiency. Because you see the bed, and then the couch is right next to it. And it's not until you get to this scene... There's this whole other room. And it's like, why the hell would there be a bed in the living room and in the... I don't know. I guess? I yeah, it's, it's funny. I'd actually, uh, I'd actually remind, remind it to the beginning. Around it, I should say. And the scene what I was on was uh, between Sterling Hayden and that uh, kind of empty female character. Where he's talking about, oh, I just got out of prison and, you know, we're going to be together. And the whole scene that when they're when they're talking, when we see the two of them together, um, they put, I guess the way they lit it was through bars. So all all across that scene as they're talking, it's like they're trapped in a prison of, of something. Nice. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. Nice. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but that make. What do you mean? What is that supposed to mean? That means a lot of things. That means that they're. They're both trapped in their ways. Because she talks about how she's had a thing for him ever since they were kids. She's always been there for him. Yeah. Always. And that she always believed that he would be the one that would lead her to whatever. Better life. Whatever. And then she talks about how when he was locked up for five years. She says, it's funny how you were locked in. But I felt like I was locked out. Um mm. And so she's a prisoner of of she's a prisoner of a cage of her own design, and he's a prisoner himself of a of a different cage of his own design, which is he's like the scorpion uh, in the famous story 
about the frog and the scorpion, uh, where he only knows how to do what he knows how to do, mm. which is why he's doing exactly the same thing as soon as he's released um, from yep. prison. He's just doing exactly what he's always done, except he's going for something bigger this time. And and they're both oh. like slaves to their ways. And and a lot of these characters are prisoners um, because before I figured all this out. I was already thinking the same thing about Sherry and her cuckold. Um, and I was thinking of Sherry as I was watching as being the ultimate scorpion who's so tied to her stupid ways. Like if she could just, if she could have just done nothing and not been herself, she would have got what she always wanted, like the money. Um, but because mm. she had to be herself, she had to screw the whole thing up. Yeah, while we were talking, that scene was playing in the background of uh, uh, whatever the, the woman's name is, <laughs> Sterling Hayden. And then interrupting the scene comes Mar- Marvin. And he's like, oh, sorry to interrupt. And then yes. she's like, oh, I've heard you're such a great friend of Johnny. And he was like, oh, I would do anything for Johnny. <laughs> and then looked at him with this very wide smile. But, but you know, what would you think of that final scene with Sherry and uh, Georgie with the weird bird and it's got like almost like a horror-ish feel to it it's that kind of a chaotic energy it was almost like it was almost like it really reminds like those two maybe it's because i've seen the movie in the last four months but it kind of reminds me of like orson wells like fighting with one of his wives in citizen kane like Mm. and 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 yeah, I haven't figured out what the whole bird thing means yet. Although I'm sure there's something about being in your own gilded cage or something. I'm sure there's something about that. I'm sure that somehow reflects Sherry's character. I need to go over. I need to go over what the bird said exactly again to figure it all out. But the way it's done so dramatically. I mean, the way it's shot and the way it unfolds. Again, it reminds me of Citizen Kane. And how some mm. of that direction is over the top a little bit, or bombastic, yeah. and like 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 look look see see the symbolism see see, uh, so there's something like that going on there. Yeah, Wells would definitely do that. Like it'd be in the middle of a normal movie, and then you get one scene that's like kind of disturbing, and it feels more like a horror scene out of nowhere. Yeah, I really like the, that juxtaposition. And apparently, so this movie did poorly at the box office um but it was it it garnered a lot of critical acclaim in in the media uh, in print media and reviews and critics so they all loved it uh the critics Mm. did and i think there was a lot of comparisons to orson wells um with what they were seeing out of this new guy on the block this kubrick guy there was a lot of comparisons oh yeah I guess Mr. Arcaden would have come out the year before this. Or I guess whatever it was called before Mr. Arcaden. Whatever the edited release for. Have you ever seen that one? No, 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 not at all. Yeah, that's another kind of chaotic, kind of like film noir film. Which I guess this is film noir, but it's it feels a little bit... Oh, it is! It is. Yeah. It feels a little bit lighter than some of the other ones. But I guess it, it starts light and then slowly falls into darkness. As like There's that wonderful last sequence when they're at the airport... And you can just feel like it's he's already lost and he just is like desperately trying to hold on. But 
we just all know that it, there's no way he's gonna win. Like once he gets to the airport, there's already these two like detectives there, and he's making a big scene, like arguing with them, trying to get to take on his big, uh, a big suitcase on the plane with them. And but it, we've seen that it's not a very good suitcase. Like it's pretty, pretty loosey goosey. So. so I possibly have two critiques on the film. Um, sure. Uh, I'll rewind the clock and talk about one, and then I'll get to the second, which which you're talking about right now. Um, oh, I guess I'm doing this to mirror what I'm about to talk about in the movie subconsciously, is talking about things out of sequence. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure I thought this the first time. And I still think it now, like, oh, it's really cool that he's, the director's playing with time, you know, mm-hmm. during the heist especially. There's a lot of rewinding and, oh, and when so-and-so was doing this, so-and-so was doing this. And there's a lot of time jumps. And overall, I think it's really cool. And, I again, it ties to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and... And Nolan and other people's like, oh, look, time jumps. Oh, look at that. Um, oh, see, oh, I get the inspiration, blah, blah, blah. Um, so overall, I think it's really cool. And it took me by surprise. Oh, and it's the Orson Welles stuff, too. Or with Citizen Kane time jumps. But anyway, um, I thought it was a nice device. And then also in the supplemental features, when they were trying to get Sterling to sign on to this movie, so... Again, I mentioned his publicist or agent was like, uh, uh, who the heck is this Kubrick guy? And, you know, you know, and, and then what's his, you know, how's he going to do this movie? What's it going to be like? And the producer, whose name I haven't named yet, but the producer who was working with Kubrick was like, well, do you know the movie Rashomon? Well, it's going to be like Rashomon. You know, he explained... It's going to be like Rashomon, and and you're going to see the story unfold from different characters' points of view. Now, I think that's a big a bit of a stretch, uh, since I've seen Rashomon now in the last year. Um, I wouldn't say that's what it is, but I get what he was doing, like trying to sell the movie um, to Sterling's representation. Okay, so there's the time jumps, and especially when we actually see the caper go down step by step there's some significant time jumps i have to say as much as i like these time jumps and it's a cool device it's done a bit more times than it needs to be done and there are some that are a bit clunky that i'm no filmmaker but i feel like some of the time jumps could have been cleaned up a little bit better in post or in editing because one that's especially jarring is when we start to see things already play out at the bar or outside the bar and we already we're already starting to see the ball in motion and then it seems like hmm. odd that a little bit then we go back before to when Sterling it it, it feels oddly yeah. cut like like a mistake or oversight cuz that's like an unnecessary flashback at the wrong time right um i don't i don't necessarily agree i kind of like seeing johnny's perspective on because we see the bartender like oh fuck like because i think it starts that that whole bar sequence it starts with the wrestler showing up yeah and kind of playing his role but then there's fucking marvin showing up wasted and 
you know, they're kind of, at least the bartender's kind of like, oh shit. So I like when Johnny shows up, because we see him, I think it starts with him uh, either picking up the gun or something like that. And then once he sees Marvin there, it's like, oh no, things aren't, things aren't going right. And then we kind of get the reveal of who opened up the door for him and... No, I don't know. Maybe we didn't need to see that. I mean, it's I kind of appreciate just seeing Sterling Hayden. Not like, oh, fuck. I just thought there was some awkward placement. Like, I thought while the time jumps overall are, are great and a good idea, that there was just some that were unnecessary and and caused a little bit of unnecessary confusion for the audience. Um, just, just, just some. I would have been a little bit more selective. Is what I'm saying in hindsight, looking back on it. Some feel a little bit awkward or oddly placed. Um, okay, so then my second critique then is God damn it. Okay, I get it. It's an interesting conclusion if nobody wins. That's fine. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. But fuck, I feel like they, oh, they should have thought of a better way. Yes. Like, why the fuck was he so committed to get on a fucking plane? Oh, it's not even... Why couldn't he fucking take a bus or just drive? And I get it. It's not even that. It's not... Well, for me. I'm just starting. That's the beginning of it. And then the fucking dog. God damn. Yes, it. it's... I mean, so many movies I watch from even the 30s, like Bride of Frankenstein had a character like this, where you get these people who feel like comedians... And they're just thrown in to do their like silly little bits. Like she feels like she just fell out of like an airplane movie and landed into this. I was about to say airplane movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I more mean airport even. <laughs> like I feel like airport movies have these kind of annoying, obnoxious people. And yeah, her stupid little dog runs around. It was a cute dog. I mean, kind of ugly, but cute at the same time. But they throw the stupid dog in there and it happens to run in front of the car at just the right time. Or a little... Uh, little luggage cart so that i felt was like a little bit like okay this i mean i get the movies kind of like i mean it starts with the unlucky horseshoe it's it's kind of like hey you never know what even if you plan things so meticulously you never know what uh what kind of god's gonna throw your way that that's kind of the theme of the movie i'm cool with that i'm cool with that i just thought they could have come with a better way yes because again he could have just fucking driven on a car and it's also got out of town. It's also the movie had so much clever humor throughout that she felt like obnoxious, obvious humor, like doing her little little baby talk to her dog. Like she felt more obnoxious than funny. And so the fact that she was the one that ultimately kind of put the nail in the coffin was just not satisfying to me. <laughs> and even the kind of um, again, he feels a little flamboyant the uh airport manager guy <laughs> i felt like he was supposed to be a little bit more outwardly comedic too and it didn't play so i i i love the end moment when the two uh two detectives like walk out towards him and they open up the dueling doors i thought that was a great end but that was cool a lot of that airport stuff felt disappointing that was cool and then okay i guess this is a third minor critique uh compared to the first two for me but there, oh, there was a bit, a bit of superfluous steps in the whole plan. Like, uh, I get having the extra room 
um, for temporary storage. He could have used the place he was staying at or something. Or, I don't know. Uh, okay, I guess. Well, okay. Okay, okay, okay. So I guess the way it gets kind of an, a little bit extra and a little bit unnecessary is... So, you know, he takes the... Um, first, he has the weapon in the, in the violin case. Um, mm-hmm. Which he could have had it in a decorative bo- uh, gift box the whole time. But that, that's an extra step to go from the... The, the instrument case to the the flower box and then he gets it and he plants it in the bus station um so that he can take the key and drop in so-and-so's mailbox again he could have just had the flower box in the first place and just given it to the guy like the flower box at his place you know what i mean and it wouldn't have changed anything like in, in the whole plan but I get it. It's just cool to like see the paces or the steps, I guess, um, of of his super complicated plan. But again, he could have just given the guy the gun in the box, and then the guy could have just gone from there, um, rather than go to the bus station first, and blah blah blah. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the thought was just because again he's you know recently on parole, he doesn't want a lot of people coming in out of his place because he might be, because I guess he was a robber in the past. So I guess he thought maybe he would be someone that they would look to, but again, his plan was just to flee on an airplane. So, and then the <laughs> cop is going to drop the money in the extra place so that he can come by and get it from the extra place, and then go meet with them. When the cop could have just brought it to the, to the place in the first yeah. place, I was doing the same thing, and it seemed like a stupid step in the first place because it was like, if we're all meeting here and the money's going to come here, really, you want a, a spot where you just leave it for Johnny? I mean, Johnny could just steal it all. So it seemed like a, a really stupid idea. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I guess that was by design to to come up with a reason on why he's late. Um, yeah. And why he's delayed. Um, so, okay. But since we're mentioning the cop, I do love there's a moment because uh, he has to go call in like a public, I guess like police box. I guess not public, but like a little police box. And I love that once he's done that, he goes and hops into his car. And then some chick runs up to the car screaming like, oh, my God, they're killing each other. I knew this was going to happen. He just steps on the gas and speeds away. <laughs> oh, that is really good. And, of course, I yeah. knew what he was doing. And I love how the narrator has to go. Yeah, he had planned this drive, you know, dozens of times. He knew exactly when he had to leave. Uh, no, that, that's a no, you're right. That was like a really good. And that's the thing. Well, I'll say that. I'll go back to this a little bit later. Um, But, because we just spent some time talking about the suitcase and how nobody gets the money ultimately, and you're talking about the horseshoe and how it's like there's forces, like there's other forces at work here. Mm -hmm. So, who are the other famous filmmakers we haven't mentioned who I feel like are tremendously inspired um, by some of Kubrick's work, and especially this one? Obviously, we've been talking about Tarantino, and um, obviously Nolan is influenced by Kubrick a lot. Uh, who are those? Uh, you know, these other famous guys are who I want to mention after we, we just talked about the suitcase and the horseshoe and fate. Well, we did mention Nolan, but no, I'm not sure who else you're you're reaching for here. I'm curious. Some other filmmakers who I really, really love in my in my. Um, my uh what do you call it what is it called that batman has his um 
Gallery of Rogues or Rogue Gallery. Yeah, Rogues Gallery, yeah. Yeah, well, I have my Rogues Gallery of Filmmakers, and I haven't mentioned... I don't mention these guys as much as I mention other ones, but... Oh, I'm curious who you got. All that suitcase, horseshoe stuff, it reeks to me of high heaven of the Coen brothers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Coen brothers was uh, directors that I was interested in when I first started getting into film, but I haven't returned to most of their films in 10 years or more, so I'm, you know, I'm a little, a little bit uh, rusty with them. <laughs> so I'm a big fan, obviously, of their stuff. I haven't seen all their movies but i've seen most of the significant ones i'm such a fan and all that shit all the planning in the world and everything going sideways i feel like that's their calling card and especially mm-hmm. highlighted like in um a fargo of course fargo the movie but also fargo the series which i'm a massive fan of as well and even though the Coen brothers don't don't work on the series directly, that whole series is a, is a love letter to their style and everything. Um, and it is Fargo. It is so Fargo. It is so Coen brothers. And I love their shit. And that's what they're all about. Is and they're also they're they're all about like there's larger forces at work that we don't understand like cosmically. Um, but also, they're so good at that. Throwing those unexpected things. Like, uh, like the guy showing up suddenly at the, uh, at the meeting point. I'm talking about um, Sherry's yeah. boyfriend. Fallon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very like how all of a sudden um, Vincent Vega gets surprised on the toilet when... Uh, <laughs> When uh, Butch goes back to his apartment, and it's like, holy mm-hmm. shit, cut that, boom, he's, like, fucking dead. Like, it's so, like, you don't see that shit coming. Just, like, he didn't see it coming. Um, and it's something that the the Coens do a lot, too. Like, you're in the middle of something, and all of a sudden, oh, shit, like, that character just comes out of nowhere um, and fucks everything up. Uh, love that stuff. Love that stuff. Love Coen Brothers. I'm surprised I don't mention them as much as I mentioned those other guys. And I know I mention Wes Anderson all the time, too. Um, but yeah, the Coen Brothers are in my rogues gallery. Uh, I love their shit, and I love how they, they play with that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to go back to a lot of their stuff. Uh, I remember when um, I first saw No Country for Old Men. That shot up to the list of one of my favorite movies at the time, and I watched that thing over and over again, and I got a real buzz for them. Remains one of my all-time favorite movies, and that's saying yeah. something because yeah, it's it's hard to get on that list. Uh, it's hard to get in, the, in my top twenty. Yeah, and I had a huge buzz, but a, a lot of the other films, except for The Big Lebowski, almost everything else I haven't seen since that time, which would have been around like two thousand eight, maybe. So it's been wow long long time but anyway uh to, to finish up uh, the killing do you feel like you have much more or should we jump into final thoughts final thoughts sure yeah um out of his early stuff i think this and paths of glory are always kind of fighting for my favorite of his um well obviously of his black and white era dr strange is my favorite but i think these two are absolute highlights of his early career um the killing 
has a wonderful sense of pace to it. Maybe some of the jumping around feels a little bit um, overdone, but I don't know. I, I like it all, and I think that Kubrick's sense of humor shines here, and I really enjoy when Kubrick has kind of a wry uh, kind of quality to his movies. So, um, absolutely love this one, and I think Sterling Hayden is a great spotlight for him. Um, so I just can appreciate that, just because I think that guy's great, super charming. But I'm a little drunk, so I feel like that's that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, um, I have to say that you know I already enjoyed this movie when I watched it earlier today, and you know in my mind I was already giving it four stars because you know this movie. It's quite conventional, and on its surface, anyway, I'd say Lolita seems conventional, and it's just astounding what Kubrick was able to do early in his career with so-called conventional, because then he just goes bonkers, you know, after that, uh, on a whole different plane. But it's still ama- it's still interesting, and, and I always. I can't ever not compare it to early Tarantino because obviously his first three movies were quote unquote conventional. Um, and you just like Kubrick, you go, all right, you know, Tarantino's good at doing SoCal stuff. I mean, set in Southern California, LA area type stuff. He's good with the whole underworld, low level mobster stuff. But you just think that's his lane. And then, boy, oh, boy, did he open that wide open, you know, in the following decade, etc. And, and mm-hmm. like Kubrick did. And it's just like, wow, these guys could just do anything they want, <laughs> it seems like. Uh, but I want to say, post-discussion that we just had, I think even more highly of this movie now, after our conversation, because... You mentioned some things that were kind of in my subconscious, but not in my, um, but, but not in the foreground for me, and and you kind of brought them to the foreground, and so now I'm thinking, wow, this, I, I already enjoyed watching this movie, but, the you know the 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 dark humor, the overt humor, the subtext, the different things that we talked about. That this wow, this movie is it's got more levels than I even thought it had three three hours ago. <laughs> like like I kind of thought, okay, I've seen it again. All right, I'm good. I don't need to watch it again for another ten years. Oh wow, because uh, this this is obviously no. This is my initial thought when I finished it earlier, because this is <laughs> some of Kubrick's movies I revisit quite a lot on an annual basis or even more than that. This is not one of them, um, but I think I need to watch it again or a few more times and like suss some things out because, uh, man, that, and that's the beauty of the Kubrick movies and I'd say the Nolan movies and other people, Tarantino. God, there's there's you thought you got it on the first or two viewings. There's still so much more. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, oh, I'm happy to hear it. No, yeah. Love this one. I think this is definitely a highlight in his, his crown of a lot of jewels. Cause he's made so many great films, but this one, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe it's underserved and how 
good it is? I don't know. I don't... I feel like I see critics talking about this one a lot, but general Kubrick, Kubrick fans, I don't feel like this one comes up as much. Oh, not nearly. Um, and maybe it'll have a resurgence one day, like it seems like Barry Lyndon has been experiencing that in recent years. Hmm. It was formerly the Kubrick movie nobody ever talked about, but it's been <laughs> catching fire for some reason in the last five years. Uh in fans and critics' minds, and all of a sudden it became cool to say that Barry Lyndon was cool. Um, <laughs> and, oh, yeah, one afterthought. I, during our conversation, like I said, there were some things I thought were going to happen in the movie and they never happened. And so I was like, wait a second, how, how am I misremembering this movie so much? And it occurred to me, or I remembered why, uh, while we were talking, and that is... So I'm a big fan of Peaky Blinders, and I don't think you've seen the series, but in season three or four, I can't remember which one it is, the whole season revolves around this horse track business oh. situation, and boy, oh boy, did they borrow from this movie. Oh, interesting. And adapt it, <laughs> adapt it into like the season arc of... Uh, of uh, that that show, Peaky Blinders. Man, you gotta watch it one of these days, but because uh, that show's fantastic in its own right. And yeah, they kind of get inspired by this story in particular, and they kind of make it into a season arc long game that the that the protagonist of the show is uh, is trying to accomplish because he has this long game plan, a la Sterling. Um, but but throughout the season, nobody knows exactly what he's trying to do. But ultimately, he's trying to pull off the ultimate heist at a at a at a, uh, at a racetrack. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I really got a. So again, I watched the first season when it first came out, and I was like, "Oh, this is a great show." Or actually, it was when the second season came out because Tom Hardy was in it. And I was like, "Oh fuck, I gotta see Tom Hardy. Love that guy." Oh, <laughs> Tom Hardy is amazing in that show. When he shows, he's amazing. Uh, but yeah, so I misremembered things from the finale of that season, and I thought they were elements of this movie. But no, I just got I just got my I just got my wires crossed. Yeah, and my final note that I I forgot to mention is, of course, I've mentioned on the podcast many times. I'm a big wrestling fan, and the guy who plays the the wrestler who's an actual wrestler, I thought he was super charming. He just had a there was that scene with him in sterling hayden when they're initially doing their deal i love i love all those little moments when it's just the two characters interacting there's so many great bits like that where they just bounce off each other really well and i thought those two had a great little bit of chemistry in that one scene i agree i agree just wanted to mention that and again like i said i i already got a book from jim thompson out from the library i was so kind of captivated by his uh, dialogue in this that i want to seek out some more of his work so so very happy to uh, have watched this again. And very happy to be doing all these movies with you. This is awesome. Love going through these. It was really cool revisiting this and, and Killer's Kiss. Not so much for your desire, but... <laughs> Hell yeah. And if we ever finish, you know, the entire Kubrick um, catalog, who knows? Maybe we will embark on Coen Brothers or who knows what. Um, sure. We shall see. Yeah, and we still got some Christopher Nolan, but... But yeah, thanks again, and I guess see you on the next one. Peace.
And of course, I did see uh, Hail Caesar when that came out, but I wasn't a huge fan of that. I'm like the only guy who thinks that movie is brilliant. <laughs> and that's funny because we, we were talking about the Hayes Code and the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. And that whole movie is, is a mockery of the Hayes Code and the Red Scare. And that's why I found so interesting about it. I wish I could have loved it, but I just found the humor just too obnoxious. It put me off. But maybe on a rewatch, I'd like it more. See, I always heard that it was like one of their worst movies. And so I, I was never in a hurry to see it. And I finally watched it. And I was like, what? Everyone has led me astray this whole time. I thought it was like great. Not their best movie, but. And I saw it after I had seen Solo. And mm-hmm. of course, that actor isn't. And I thought he was brilliant in Hail Caesar. And I yeah, was, he was great. Fantastic. And I was like, why have I not seen this guy in more stuff? I feel like he's been underused. Um, yeah. Uh, in the industry he really has um he's amazing he's really good in solo too i thought he really um yeah all things considered i I mean do you have to play you know this iconic young harrison ford character yeah i think yeah he's super charming in both films yeah it's too bad hopefully hopefully they'll land like an hbo show or something i'll take him doing solo over chris pine doing um kirk although Oh, yeah. I'm not a hater of that either. I actually think that's a pretty decent uh, recasting. Uh, but Yeah, he's fine for his own thing, but he never, ever feels like Kirk to me. <laughs> not even slightly like Kirk. But it's its own thing. I, I, I'm not going to... Well, he's like... He's the Kirk of, like... You know, like in comic books, like of the... Like, you know, Earth 2 or Earth 3 or Kelvin timeline, like... You know, multiverse. Yeah, he's multiverse Kirk. Yeah, but for at least for um, that guy in Solo, even though obviously it's not like he would age up to be Harrison Ford, there's enough of a shared energy. I feel like the energy in yeah for Chris Pine is yeah very very different from Kirk. Not any sort of similarity, but they would never try to be similar to the Kirk from the '60s. So <laughs> that would just not play well, I don't think, in a modern film. But 